We're going to do the most important thing we do at Sora Bible Church, and that's read the Bible. Um, we're reading from Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Many years ago, I was on my way home from Kirawee High School. I had a tiger bag that I was carrying over my right shoulder, as was my practice. For those of you who are a bit younger than myself, a tiger bag was the bag to carry to school. You didn't want to carry a canvas bag. You definitely didn't want to have a backpack that could go over two shoulders. For some reason, that was very wimpy. You had this thing called a tiger bag, which is basically just a black bag that you could hold over your shoulder like this. And it was just, just a duffel bag, really. And I had so many books in my bag that I was nearly breaking my back. Yet, it was cool to have a tiger bag over my right shoulder as I walked home up Avenal. Those of you who might know the geography around here, it can be quite undulating, to say the least. And walking up that hill in the heat of summer with this tiger bag was not only my only restriction, I was also wearing very thick desert boots. Again, in the early 80s, desert boots were the shoe of choice for everybody who wanted to look cool. They were as hot as putting hot things on your feet and walking around. That's how hot those shoes were. Needless to say, I was already uncomfortable. However, it got more uncomfortable because it was also cool to wear shark socks in the middle of summer as well. Footy socks that weren't pulled up but rolled down around the ankles. I was wearing my polyester shark socks and they were hot as in my hot shoes. And I had my tiger bag over my shoulder and my hot shoes on and my socks on. To make it more uncomfortable, it was very trendy to wear a Quicksilver or a Billabong shirt underneath your school shirt. So in 35 degrees, I was walking up the hill in my, with my tiger bag, my hot shoes and my t-shirt feeling incredibly powerful and cool. Because everybody who was walking home were equally dressed in the same attire and we all walked along thinking how cool did we all look. And there was this smug little kind of look of recognition that we'd give each other as we walked past each other if we noticed that the person in front of us didn't have a bag over two shoulders and they were wearing desert boots and shark socks. Now, one of my friends at school was a bit of a stirrer and he went for manly, so he'd always wear his manly socks, which caused a great deal of derision, but he seemed to not care about it. But anyway, that was the style of 1982. Well, as I was walking up the hill, I was so concerned to make sure that I fitted in that I didn't notice that sometimes people didn't quite manage to get that look right. And there was a particular year seven kid who was walking home that day with a backpack on and he didn't have the right shoes on. He had 1970s leather black patent shoes that were shiny. He had a pair of white socks on, 
not shark, shark socks. Like, can you imagine that he would miss that detail? White socks. And not only did he have white socks on, he had them pulled up to his knees. So he's walking along with these walk socks on, walking up the road with his backpack on, this kid in year seven, and he didn't even have a T-shirt on underneath his Kirawi High School shirt. Now, I noticed, but I didn't say anything. But I had that condescending look that Australians had begun to adapt to in the 1980s. According to my good friend, uh, who is, I won't bother telling you who he is because no, no one here knows him. But anyway, my friend reckons that somewhere in the 70s, Australians stopped saying hello by going down and we started saying hello by going up. I don't know if you've noticed that. You might want to talk about that over dinner if you think that's an accurate description of how Australians greet each other to this day. Apparently it's American, not Australian in his opinion, because that's more humble and that's a bit arrogant. But it's also a gesture, by the way, my American friends, I hope I've successfully over the years said how much I love America that that little slight's gone through to the keeper. <laughs> Jeff's, Jeff's looking a little bit uncomfortable over there. <laughs> I'll fix that up afterwards, Jeff. We'll have a chat. Um, anyway. I, I think that that little gesture can also be a gesture that you can look at someone and go, hmm, it's not just a hello, it's also a, hmm, that person doesn't get it. So that day, I don't know if I did that gesture or not, but that's kind of what I was thinking when I saw this kid walking up the street with his socks pulled up with his black shoes and his backpack on. However, there was a kid who was riding on his BMX bike who was coming towards him and he yelled out something that I won't repeat in the church service to this kid because he was considered a bit dorky. That was a word that was quite trendy back in the 80s. But he swore a little bit, said something rude, said the word dork, and then proceeded to spit on this kid as he rode past on his bike. He didn't just spit. In the 80s, we would call it... <laughs> Julie's covering her ears. In the 80s, we would have called this particular spit to hock a loogie. So it's basically generate as much phlegm as your body is cap capable of generating and then expel that said liquid in the direction of set, said opponent. This poor kid copped it on the side of his head and I was shocked. And I think that was the first moment that I thought of injustice. I saw that and I thought that wasn't just, that kid didn't deserve that. But I never said anything as the boy on the BMX bike rode past. I just didn't say anything. And I just walked up to that kid in year seven and I said, are you okay? And he said, stay away from me and ran away, poor little kid. What is the solution to injustice in the world? What do we do in a world where people do that kind of stuff to each other? And that is a very benign example of injustice, isn't it? It's a benign example of injustice because I wanted to make it kind of understood that we're all capable of such acts. You might not have ever hocked a loogie at someone. But like me that day, I was actually looking down on this kid because he didn't have the right gear. Is that, what, what is the right approach to this? Well, tonight, Jesus is going to help us as Christians, those of us here who are followers of Jesus, be a solution to the problems of injustice in the world. And he's unpacking that in this beautiful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 5, and this is what he says in verse 5. I don't know if it'll come up on the screen or not. Yeah, it did. Great. Jesus says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, at first glance, this statement may seem a little bit surprising because the word meek, although it's not a word that we use very often, we've all got a bit of a sense of what a meek person might be. 
It's often used as someone who's a bit weak and powerless. In fact, the kid with his socks on, with his backpack on, may be considered meek because he didn't get it right. He wasn't successful and powerful and he didn't understand how to get on in this world and as a result, someone actually spat on him because he had the wrong clothes on. Now, it's a good thing that schools aren't like that as much anymore. I don't know, maybe I could talk to some of you crew now and see if anything's changed, but 310 on the Oval at Kirawee was quite a popular thing where kids would go and have fights after school, they'd have fights down at the camp, they'd have fights all over the place. People used to get binned at school, people were flushed down toilets, all sorts of horrible abusive things happened at school and hopefully that doesn't happen anymore in schools. Maybe it does, I don't know. But the meek are often the ones who are the weak and the powerless who are systematically bullied, the ones who can't stand up for themselves, the ones who aren't assertive, the people who are doormats, the people who are easily led astray, the people who other people take advantage of. Yet here Jesus says the meek will actually be the ones who are successful. Now, is that, is that a bit ringy, by the way, Chris, or is that all right, that microphone? Is every, I just heard a little bit of a ring. It might just be my ears. So why is Jesus talking about meekness being the way to be able to inherit the earth? Because it's not just in our time that meekness was considered like that. Actually, at the time of the Greeks, the Greeks of Jesus' day, the people who weren't Jews particularly, have written much about meekness and actually have no respect for the meek. In fact, the Greeks of Jesus' day would have connected meekness with slavery. The slave was a meek person who was living under the control of someone else, having no intrinsic value as an individual person, a powerless person who was invisible who had no agency and no opportunity for success and prosperity. The Jews thought similarly in Jesus' time. Yet Jesus' statement here is clear. He says, it's, if you want to inherit the earth, you need to be meek. And this is the starting point for a new way of living in the Sermon on the Mount. Understanding how Jesus sees the world is going to understand how you can be a force for good in this world. By the way, talking about being a force for good in this world, if you're online, you won't realise that our young crew are actually mopping up a cup of tea right now, actually successfully making this world a better place as we speak. <laughs> so, so well done. What was that, Liz? You always spill something at the front. You always spill something at the front. You're very diligent. You don't have to worry too much about it right now, but if you want to clean it up, that's cool too. Anyway, what Jesus is doing in this passage is pointing to a new way of living, and I want you to be as excited about this as I am. And what I want to say first up tonight is that meekness, this idea of meekness, is not just a concept that Jesus introduced in this sermon at this time. It's actually a concept that goes right back through the Old Testament and in the Bible. And I want to introduce you just to a couple of things from the Old Testament that talk about that and even some of the ways that some of Jesus' followers applied this as well. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 is going to come up on the screen. And here we have a really beautiful example of how Moses has been described, this is the man who leads Israel. This is the mighty Moses, one of the heroes of the Jewish faith. And look how he's described here in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anybody else on the face of the earth. Now, that, that's a big call. Remember, the, the, the Bible has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Remember that at this moment. This, then, is not an author who is prone to exaggeration. When the Holy Spirit inspires words to be written down, they're true. 
So here we're told in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses is literally the most humble man in his generation. And he is the leader of the people of Israel. Imagine if we could say of our leaders in the present day that our leader is the most humble person on the face of the earth. How would that change how you see leadership in Australia? Or if not in a political sphere, what about in your corporate sphere or your business sphere or in your schools? Wherever you are and you're sitting under people who have authority over you, how would it change your opinion to authority if you knew that the person above you was a humble person? It might not change. But if you get pulled over by a police person as you get given a fine for speeding at 65 kilometres an hour in a 50 zone, not that I'd ever know what that's exactly like, but imagine I did get pulled over for doing 65 in a 50 zone and the policeman who pulled me over was known to be the most humble policeman on the face of the earth, would that change the way I saw that person? I think it would. Would you agree? Well, Moses was that kind of leader. But the thing about Moses is he wasn't born with that meek personality, was he? If you have been uh, privileged with the opportunity to go to, to kids' church, you will have probably been brought up with the story of Moses. And even if you haven't, you'll probably know his, his, gen, his Genesis story, his origin story, is not of one who is humble, but one who is powerful and assertive. In fact, Moses, who was taken from the bulrushes uh, by the princess of Egypt, was brought up in the court of Pharaoh to be living in the lap of luxury. He was apportioned all the power and notoriety and privilege that the, the Egyptian court rather could, could bestow on him. And he was an arrogant man. Yet he found out that he was a Jew. And when he found out he was a Jew, he noticed that the Jews in Egypt were being mistreated because the Jewish people were slaves. The people of Israel were being used by the Egyptians as slaves and were treated horribly. Moses' original reaction to that was not humble and meek, but it was arrogant and violent. In fact, Moses killed a, 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 an Egyptian soldier who was beating and whipping a slave. He killed him and then he buried him in the sand. He was the opposite of humble and meek. He was assertive and powerful. But over a 40-year period after he ran away from Egypt and lived in the wilderness, God transformed this man who was arrogant and proud into what? The most humble person who has ever worked, walked the face of the earth in his generation. And it's not just Moses. We might think, well, that's a stellar example, Stu, but that's not too common. Well, let's think of Paul. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, we read from the Apostle Paul, by humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. What's he talking about there? Well, the Corinthians had dropped the ball, basically. Um, Paul wrote to them in two letters, which approximate, those two letters approximated a half-time talk by a coach to a losing rugby league team in the NRL. They were very forceful, they were clear and they were blunt because in those letters, Paul wanted to say that sin is not to be abided in the church. We are not to say that sin is okay. We can't live in two worlds. We either live for God or we live in this world. We live in the flesh or we live in the spirit. We can't do both. And he was very clear with the Corinthians that they needed to change. In the first letter of the Corinthians, he was laying down so many things to them, telling them things that they got wrong, that by 2 Corinthians, 
they'd actually fixed a whole heap of stuff in their church and they themselves had been transformed by his teaching. But even though they'd been transformed, I love this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul says, yes, I am clear to you when I write to you about how important it is to live holy lives, but when I am face to face with you, I am timid. Isn't that an astonishing description of the leader of the church? He's timid. Now, we associate timidity with powerlessness and ineffectiveness. If someone was to say, oh, what's the pastor of Soul Revival like? And you said he's a timid person. How do you think people would respond to that? Have a moment just to think about it. Imagine if someone was thinking about coming along to check out Soul Revival and they said, oh, what's the pastor like? Oh, he's timid. They might even say, oh, I might give that church a wide berth. I don't want to serve under timid leadership. Yet Paul the Apostle describes himself to the Corinthians when he is face to face with them as timid. But I want to say to you that that's actually quite an attractive thing when you think about it. Here's this man who has every right to shout and yell at them for what they're doing wrong. I mean, in the church in Corinth, for example, someone had actually been in a relationship with his stepmother. That's how far this church had fallen. These people really needed a good shake-up. Yet when Paul's with them, he doesn't look down on them. Remember that story I told you of that guy who thought that kid with his socks pulled up in the wrong bag? was so far below him that he felt so proud and arrogant he could spit at that kid. Paul is actually the opposite of that kid. He has the authority and the right to come down heavy and strong, but he doesn't. He chooses to be timid and mild. Now, what does Jesus say about meekness that has transformed Paul and is at the heart of the transformation of Moses as well. Well, let's have a look at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5. Because if we're going to understand this passage, we have to understand all of these phrases of Jesus in this series in reference to the first one. In the first one, Jesus says, Happy or blessed are you if you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So if you are poor in spirit, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago and repeated it last week and we're going to repeat it each week actually so we really think about it as a church. To be poor in spirit is to recognise your need of God. That's what it is. To recognise that you don't have everything all together and that you have a humble view of yourself. That the evil in the world isn't out there caused by everybody else. I actually participate in the evil in this world and I'm actually sad about that. We talked about that last week in verse 4, that we're actually willing to mourn at our own sin. And as a result, Jesus says, if you are poor in spirit and you turn to me for help, you will actually have the kingdom of heaven. You will live forever. Because Jesus doesn't seem to be in the business of waiting for people to feel really proud before he steps into their life and transforms them. In fact, scriptures tell us that Jesus opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And here Jesus is saying in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, those ones who are poor in spirit, are going to be people who, like Paul, do not seek to have power over other people and control them, or to seek to get angry and aggressive to make people bend to their will. Rather... They appeal to the authority of God himself. And that is not weakness, it's meekness. 
You can have an incredibly strong person who is meek. Being meek doesn't make you a weak person. Being meek makes you someone who is waiting on the Lord and waiting for him to direct your paths. It's like being like a coiled spring. Now, I was looking at that spring before church. See that spring over there? Um, I don't think anybody in this room would be strong enough to push. I'll get it for you so you can see it over the other side. Hang on. It's also good for those who are online. Can you see that? Now, I don't think there's anybody here who'd be strong enough to push that down. I don't know. Maybe afterwards you crew at the front here can see if you can give it a crack. I reckon Lucy may be able to pull it off. Can you imagine if I did have the strength to coil that spring and keep it under tension? It'd be incredibly powerful, wouldn't it, that spring? Ready for action. That's what it's like to be meek. To be powerful, but to be coiled and ready for action. That's what it's like to be meek. You can explode, but you don't. You can get bold with someone, but you don't. What you're doing is you're available to use your stored energy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the meek do. So if you're poor in spirit and you've mourned at your own sin and you know that Jesus has forgiven you, you're readying yourself for service of the Lord, not for yourself. With the huge amount of responsibility that comes with being a Christian, you coil your energy waiting for the Lord to direct where he wants your energy to go. Another example would be a a mighty horse. Isn't it great to see someone at the Olympics on a horse? Have you seen those show jumping on the horse? It's incredible to watch those beautiful big animals, isn't it? I mean, they are so powerful, so much more powerful in the case of a horse than the rider, that they sit there with their power coiled, ready for action, at the direction of the rider. And when you watch those horses ride around that arena, it's almost they're having the time of their life. They've been built for that, But the partnership they have with their rider is what gives them almost more joy than they could have if they just ran around by themselves. The Christian is meek in that we have the opportunity to coil our potential for the use of the Lord so that he may direct our energy for his purposes. And if you want that unpacked a bit more for you, have a look at Psalm 37, which I think Jesus is referencing here. 37 verses 1 to 4. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Coming back to my first question, how do we solve injustice? The first thing is not to fret when you see evil. Hands up if you fret when you see evil. Hands up if you fret when you watch the news. Hands up if you fret when you see something happen that you just find really, really sad. The first thing we're instructed to do is do not fret. Do not be sad at that in the sense that you don't have to be envious of those who do wrong or think that they're going to get away with it in eternity because eventually they're going to be brought before their heavenly creator who's going to judge everybody. So there will be judgment on all sin. In fact, Jesus says really clearly, he says, see these little ones running around, these little kids. If anybody hurts any of these kids, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the river because when my heavenly father gets a hold of them, they're really going to know it. So in other words, Jesus is saying, look after the kids, but if any of you don't look after the kids, my heavenly father's going to deal with it. And he goes to the next step and says, do not take revenge because God himself will take revenge. Now, does that mean you don't stop evil when you see it? No, but you don't live 
fretful, fretting and being scared because the world isn't out of control because God is still here. And he's here in the presence of his people tonight. The Holy Spirit is with us. And God hasn't let the world go out of control, although we think it is sometimes, because he is in control and he is eternal. But those who perpetrate evil in verse 2 are not eternal, for the grass will soon wither and the green plants will soon die away. But verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. See, the way to respond to evil is to do good. We don't do good as Christians to get to heaven. We do good because we are meek, coiled springs waiting to be used by the Heavenly Father. If you see an opportunity to do good, uncoil your meekness, Christian. With all the power God has given you, make this place a better place. Make this place a better place. Now, I was only in year eight or year nine or whatever it was when I saw that kid spat on, but I should have stopped that kid on the bike and said, how dare you do that to that little kid? Because I was bigger than the kid on the bike and he wouldn't have been able to hit me. I should have said something. And that day stuck in my memory so much that since then, if I do see injustices like that, within my power to do something in a non-violent way, I'll seek to help and protect people. One day I was coming home from soccer and I had, coincidentally, a bag over my shoulder. Probably because I'd been carrying one over my shoulder for the whole of high school and I've ruined my back and I probably can't carry a back normally anymore. Backpack, anyway, there's the cup again. I'm, I'm, I'm walking down my street on the way home, loose at home, making dinner. I, it's about 6.30 at night and I'm slurping on a slurpee and I'm walking down the street and I hear this blood-curdling scream and a woman runs out of the units across the road, across the road, half-dressed, screaming, and she runs up to me and she says, help me. And I'm sucking on my slurpee as she stands there. And then outside of the same unit comes this massive dude. He's like six foot ten. He's like 20 metres wide. He's got muscles as big as the Titanic. And he comes running out. His face was red with rage. And I was terrified. But I didn't act in a terrified way because I didn't fret at that moment. You know what I thought to myself? I thought, hmm, okay. This is interesting. The Lord has placed me on this street right at this moment. wonder why. wonder if I'm like a horse ready to uh, run around a show jumping course right now. wonder if the Lord has in mind that he has reins controlling me right now saying, hey, Stu, you know that coiled energy you've got? You know that meekness? It's ready for it to come un... What's the word? Uncoiled. <laughs> not violently but meekly so this guy comes up to me he's so close to me I can smell the whiskey on his breath and he's yelling at me in a drunken rage who said you could stand here I said no one had another slurp on my slurpee he said get out of the way I said I had another slurp and then I said well I'm quite happy standing here actually it's a nice night he said to the girl, he said, you come home with me now. And she looked at me and I said to her, you don't have to. You don't have to. You can stay with me. He said, don't get involved. And I said, I already am. 
and I took another slurp out of my Slurpee. Did I punch him? Did I wrestle him? Did I yell at him or swear at him? No. Did I speak calmly and strongly? Yes. Did I move out of the way? No. No, I didn't. And he went back inside. As I was standing there, I was praying. Lord, I don't know what to do. Just use me. It could have turned out badly for me, I suppose. But in that moment, I thought to myself, isn't that a different situation to what happened to that young guy that day at Kirawee High School? And I said to that girl, you don't have to go back there, you know. And she said, no, I think I want to. I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah, I think I do. I wasn't going to force her, but she walked off. See, in Psalm 37, verse 7, it says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. How often do we do that in our life? To be still and wait patiently for the Lord is to be meek. It's like being a stallion at the gold medal ribbon round of the Olympics, just waiting to run around that course and jump over those obstacles, but waiting for the rider to say, now let's go. The problem for us as Christians is sometimes we try and take things into our own hands. We try and solve problems the way we think they should be solved. We are meant to do good, but here in verse 37, 8, 9, it says, refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. Do not fret because it only leads to evil. Interesting contrast. If we get upset and fret and worry about what people think of us and get angry at how people are treating us, we're more likely to be perpetrators of evil ourselves in anger and frettiness. However, Psalm 37, 10 and 11 says, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Isn't that interesting? A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But look what it says in verse 11 of the Psalm. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. What is it exactly that we inherit as the meek? we will actually inherit the new heaven and the new earth that will be free from sin and stain. Meekness is one of the great virtues of the Christian church because as we wait, we do good. We coil our potential in the service of the Lord and we wait to be used for him, sometimes in very unexpected circumstances. In Colossians 3.12, it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience brothers and sisters if we are to be the meek who inherit the earth it doesn't matter if you wear your bag over two shoulders or one i know there's a storm coming i'm aware of that too (laughs) sounds a bit scary but let's wait see what happens um don't you don't have to wear a billabong shirt underneath your school shirt you don't have to wear shark socks or manly socks or st george socks to school you don't have to wear desert boots But what you do clothe yourself with is kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Those virtues are not weak. They are incredibly strong. And in Jesus' logic, his countercultural logic, the new heaven and the new earth will have no anger or wrath in it. But it will be full of kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. What do we do when we get it wrong? Remember that I used the example of Moses and Paul, two men who are described as meek in the Bible who started off being the opposite. Remember Moses killing the, the slave driver 
Well, Paul actually used to kill Christians. But who transformed them? God did. And I'm encouraging us as a church to be constantly being transformed into this image. This is our character as a church, to be meek. Not to be angry and violent. Not to be frustrated when people don't serve you the right way or do things properly or this church is a mess because it's not run well. That's not the kind of people we're meant to be. We look for the good. We don't ignore the bad, but we look for the good. And if you're ever walking home and hear someone crying out from a building, you might surprise yourself that God might use you in such a circumstance as well. If this has brought up anything for anyone tonight, can I encourage you to come and see us afterwards? But please don't see this as a high bar to have to jump over straight away. Even horses learn how to jump high enough to get in the Olympics. But isn't that a good goal for us all to have? To be the kind of horses that get into the Olympics? You might not be able to get this spring coiled, but I bet you know how to coil your potential somewhat tonight in service of the Lord. Maybe you could share with someone over dinner how you think you might be doing that in practice this week.